Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Thank you, KD, for getting us started. People, tonight, we have a awesome show. Some people call it Coleman Love. I call it I Love It When a Plan Comes Together. And that plan is to get a brother, a sister, two awesome people who are historians. You know, I'm a big fan of history. And why? Because people say, you know, when you don't know your history, you can be doomed to repeat it. Tonight, we got some awesome speakers, and they're going to take us on a journey. A journey about not the story other people have told, but stories that are told from our people. So getting started, we're going to get started with Dr. Kamika Roll. And at the top of the hour, you will see frat brother Peter J. Borkin. And we're going to get started, but before we do... I just want to welcome Dr. Roll and Dr. Roll and get you off meet so you can hear. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Awesome. How is your day going? You're looking awesome. Uh, my, thank you. My day is, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, I'm grateful to, to be alive. We'll say that. Awesome. Well, you tell you why I'm excited. Man, you got this new book coming out. And I'm telling you, it's guaranteed to be a bestseller. I'm like, let me get her on the show before she blow up. And she'd be like, I don't know them people. So I wanted to get you before. Before, well, I you know. You. I thank you for saying it's going to be a bestseller. And I received that. Thank you. It gots to be because I love the story. And I went back and I listened to the story, our initial session, multiple times. But before we get started, let me just kind of read you guys' bios. I don't always read bios, but sometimes I do because it gives us a good backdrop, right? So let me go ahead and tell you about our first speaker. Dr. Kamika Roll is an urban education expert with more than 20 years of experience. Her work focuses on the intersection of race, politics, history, and urban school reform. She spent seven years as an urban education professional in public schools of Baltimore City and Washington, D.C., teaching, coaching teachers, and helping to lead a charter high school. In 2006, Dr. Royal returned to her hometown of Philadelphia and transitioned to higher education. First by teaching pre-service teachers at Lincoln University of Pennsylvania, then for other colleges and universities in Philadelphia and Baltimore. And now she's here tonight while she continues to coach and support urban school leaders and teacher educators. Y'all, welcome Dr. Kamika Roll. What is up, girl? I love that background. I mean, that's a that's a beautiful bio. Did you write that? I think so. You said, I think so. She's like, what day is it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's all I feel right now. I love it. I love it. Well, like I said, I'm excited because, you know, we talked about your book and things like that. But before we get into that, let's talk about you, your origin story. Right. Tell us about you, you know, where you're from, you know, and how you got to this place that you are today. 
So I'm from Philly. I'm I'm from the place I wrote about. I am a Philly John, um, born and raised in Southwest Philly in a neighborhood uh, called Penrose. And um, my, but I come from, I have very Southern roots. So my father is from Person County, North Carolina. Um, and my grandmother is from Sumter, South Carolina. My parents met in Philadelphia and they got married in the 1960s and they're still married and um, stressing us out in their uh, twilight years. And, um, you know, I, first generation college. So I um, ended up going back to North Carolina to go to school and, and became an educator after that. And that's what I've been doing for the last 23 years. Um, but I'm just blessed to be able to sort of ask questions about schooling and education now that I had early on, but took some time to formulate how I wanted those questions to be asked and to figure out where I want to do my teaching. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, um, thank you for being here tonight. And I'm excited because, you know, people who know me know I love a good story. I love a good testimony. One thing I like when we sit down and talk is you told us, you told me about your journey. And one quote I grabbed from that session is, you mentioned how your journey, your struggles and rejection along the way is important because it's all about your story of success. Tell the people what that means to you. Like, what does that statement mean for you? Well, you know, especially in the era of social media, people see they see your wins mostly. You know, you don't want to be this person on social media who's always sort of complaining and bellyaching about things that don't go well. Um and then, you know, people are sort of putting out the highlights. So just because you see the highlights doesn't mean that there aren't um, losses and, and, and things that feel like failure um, along the way. And so I, I would say that I've had that in sort of multiple ways. As someone who has a doctorate, um, I spent the first two years post-doctorate on, uh, as an adjunct um, and not being able to pay rent and, and at odds with um, PGW, the Philadelphia uh, Gas Works Company, um, you know, not always being able to sort of pay for that, right? And having my family, because I'm first generation college, look at me like, how you got a whole PhD and you are adjunct. Even when I got the job I have now as a professor, my father was like, is this a whole job or is this a piece of job? Because you know, you'll take a piece of job. I was like, it's a whole job. He was like, you go every day? I'm like, you know, academics don't go every day. He was like, mm -hmm. does it have benefits? Because these little pieces of jobs you've been taking, they don't have no benefits. Um, so there's that. And then there's, as I was writing this book, which I it was my dissertation, um, but then I started to build on it to try to turn it into a book. The book was turned down by several um, academic publishers, including the one that ultimately published it. Um, and so that was hard. You know, it was definitely sort of my faith in the story needed to be told that kept me going. It wasn't because I had a contract. Right. It was me believing that this story needed to get out there and that somewhere, you know, we, we it is true that we make the road by walking. I kept going and knowing, you know, somebody is going to pick this joint up. And um, and they did. You know, that part of your story, I mean, it just mesmerizes me because if I look at your book, the title and it's getting ready to drop y'all on, I think it's May 30th, still May 30th, right? May 31st. Yeah. May 31st is going to drop this month. And we're getting ready to speak to the speaker before. And Tamika is quick. She had already dropped it in the chat so y'all can get it for your education curriculum. But let me give you the title. Not Paved for Us. Black Educators and Public School Reform in Philadelphia. 
Now, y'all know I'm from Texas. I don't know what was going on in Texas. You know, I was in, a, I mean, in Philly. I was in a whole country by itself, Texas, right? But in speaking with Kamika, I began to realize, wow, there was a lot going on in Philly that has created the backdrop of not just Philly, but for the whole nation when it comes to school reform. So if you would, um, Kamika, Dr. Roll, tell us about the political climate and history of Philadelphia schools during the time frame of what you researched this book for. And I think it was 1963 to 2017, right? So the book starts in 67, but usually when I'm telling like the synopsis of the story, we have to start in 1937. Um, okay. Because 19, prior to 37, um, when a teacher was appointed or got hired by the district, the district actually put them on two separate lists. Now, they put them on one list for white teachers and one list for black teachers. The reason that's significant is because Philadelphia always boasts itself as never having had a segregated school district, right? So we're supposedly, you know, this northern city and we're desegregated, but you have these separate lists. In 1937, there was this group that kept fighting them and saying, you know, this is not right. Y'all supposed to be so liberal, blah, blah, blah. And so they merged the list. But they still find ways, like they always do, to sort of treat Black um, educators as second-class citizens, right, to only send them to certain types of schools. By the time the book starts in 1967, we're at the sort of tail end of the civil rights movement, and, and we're moving into, um, in some ways, this more radical sort of movement. Um, and you have these radical uh, protests and, 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 and this activism that's sparking, not just in Philadelphia, not just across the country, but around the world. Um, one of my favorite parts, one of the things I found from, from that first chapter was uh, uh, one of the most senior ranking black educators in the school district of Philadelphia um, asks, does this school board and the superintendent believe in educational colonialism? Okay. And so he goes into sort of, and, you know, you have to think there were all this sort of anti-colonial um, activism happening, right, in Africa and throughout Asia at this time, right, all these uprisings. And in Philadelphia, they're starting to make these connections. It's not just a colonial power, you know, somewhere else. It's not just the UK having, you know, this power and sort of colonizing all these people, but we have our own version here in the U.S. and in Philadelphia as well. And he would talk about Black folks doing the work of the school district, sort of taking doing the heavy lift, but the white folks getting credit for it. Um, you know, the same things we see now, right, where Black people have to be twice as credentialed to get half the type of position, um, but white folks can just sort of walk in and, you know, somebody looks at them like, oh my God, you're so wonderful just because you're here. Um, so that's what we saw in 67. Even the superintendent that's appointed in 67, he was like 41 or 42 years old, which is, and, and I say this as wild because I'm 44. And so I can't imagine um, being so inexperienced and walking into a, a city and uh, the city just handed me its key and saying, you know, hey, we're going to trust you with all of these, um, with all of our young people. Um, so you also had this very sort of white ethnic uh, group in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a very blue collar city. It's one of the things I love about it. Like what I love about home is that we, you know, they say that we the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, but I always say with an edge, because, you know, we got a little, we got a little bit of edge. Like you're going to want to watch yourself going down North Philly, um, going up and down Market Street, Broad Street, you know what I'm saying, going West Oak Lane, South Philly, wherever it is. But the, um, the, 
all time. Oh, gosh, I, it's so much. I, it's hard to even know like where to sort of, you know, rest it. Um, but there was just so much activism and these white folks were sort of pushing back against like they, they saw black people making strides and it scared them. It freaked them out. And so everything they did was to try to protect this stronghold they had, you know. So that's how the sort of the political orientation of the, the books start. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. And oh, you know, I, I've often heard about Philly and, you know, and things, you know, but I'm from a distance. But the way you tell it, it takes me there. Right. You describe the book blue collar. You describe the edge. Right. You describe the energy. So now when I'm thinking about the people that I've met and encountered from 50 Philly along the way, all the way from college into now, I'm like, you know what? You hit the nail on the head. And I like that edge as you describe it. And you give me that energy, right? And we see it in the musicians too. Now tell me this, right? You know, being a fan of history, there was some key people. Now tell me, who's that superintendent again that you mentioned? What was his name? The first one I mentioned? Yes. yes. Mark Shedd. Mark Shedd, okay. the young white guy that brought in in 67. Okay, great, great. So, so let's talk about a few details that were also significant. Tell us about the... Well, let's talk about the voluntary transfer program first. And then I want to talk about that police chief because he a mother, right? Look, tell us about the voluntary uh, transfer program in this backdrop around 1967. Yep. So I learned about the voluntary transfer program as a doctoral student. Um, it's something that started in 1964 in the district. And it was an effort to sort of desegregate the faculties of the school district of Philadelphia. Um, as someone who grew up in Philly and was raised in um in, in church there, I knew that I had to know some elders who had something to do, were somehow involved with this program. And so I called some of my elders um, from the church I grew up in. And I had one who was like, I absolutely refused to participate in that program. Actually, he's the bros. He was like, nope, there, I was not I was staying at the school where I was. Um, and there was, you know, my Sarah who said I, I absolutely signed up for it. And so she talked to me about some of the things she dealt with in going to teach at South Philadelphia High School as part of the voluntary transfer um, program. But it's also one of the things I end up critiquing in the book. Because, you know, historically, our policies to redress racism and segregation in this country, those policies um, have been built or set on the backs of Black people. It's, it seems to be us who has to, like, we have to go desegregate the faculty. We have to, and even in Philly, they had something called racial balance, right? Mm -hmm. If your faculty, they, they would say, okay, if you have this certain percentage of white teachers and this certain percentage of black teachers, now you've achieved the racial balance. And if you don't have balance, somebody, whatever race of the teacher of these different groups, they would have to leave and go to another school. So each school could be balanced. In the late 70s, some black educators were like, wait a minute, we are black people teaching at a majority black school. Why should we have to leave? Like we work well with each other. We're invested in these children. Why are we responsible for desegregating this school district? We didn't create this problem. Yet you want to make us responsible to be the remedy for this problem. Uh, okay, now I can see the backdrop. Mm -hmm. Now, how about the student protests of 67? What, what, what was the catalyst for that? What kind of led up to that? Well, I mean, you know, it's, 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 fascinating because these young people who were protesting, it was 55 years ago, right? So okay. these people were 15, 16 years old, and now they're, you know, they're in their 70s, some of them. Um, but it was 3,500 high school students from across the city, and they were demanding more Black history courses. They wanted more Black educators. Um, they just wanted to have more freedom and to have a say over how their education was done. 
and they converged um, on 21st in the Parkway where the school district of Philadelphia's administration building used to be. And they were out there having their rally, um, which was which was something that had been going on in the, in the country, right? We would see young people protesting. It was on the news um, all over, right? But on this particular day, November 17, 1967, uh, Frank Rizzo, who was the police commissioner at the time, he sends these newly minted police officers down to the parkway with the order to get their black asses. Oh, is that what he said? That's exactly what he said. You can look at Matthew Countryman's book, Up South, where he talks about uh, civil rights in Philadelphia. And that was um, what Frank Rizzo, the command he gave his folks, get their black asses. Some accounts said that he said beat their black We do know that not only were young people beaten down on the parkway, but even black administrators who were down there trying to quell the situation, at least one of them was also beaten by officers on the parkway. Well, that is crazy. You know, crazy that it would kind of seem unbelievable. But when we kind of fast forward to 2016, it's like, uh, yeah, that's real believable. Right. So there's a lot going on. So you know, thank you for kind of giving us the backdrop because, you know, the place I I was from, you know, we studied Texas history and, you know, we didn't really pay attention to other history, but I enjoyed this session because it really kind of helps me understand what you were doing and what was going on in other parts. And this was funny because Philly was one of the supposed most liberal places in the country, supposedly, right? So seeing this backdrop just really kind of tells a story. Let's talk about the book. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about the research and the lessons you learned along the way. First, you know, my favorite, tell us about the chapters in the book. How did you name the chapters in the book and why did you name the chapters in the book? I was struggling for a while trying to um, come up with some of the names. And um, when I was trying to sort of finish the book, I, I had to go really hard last year. Like this time last year, I was doing everything I could to wrap this joint up. And sometimes to get my thoughts going, I would put on old school hip hop. And I started thinking about some of the ways, um, the range, sort of the decades of, of, of the most important music to me um, during the, the era. So the late 80s when I was like in middle school and then nine, like on through college, I'm a graduate from college in 99, but the ways the music sort of spoke to the movements and the moments. So for instance, the fourth chapter of my book, um, I call Ready to Die. The reason, now I'm a huge Biggie fan um, the big Ready to Die came out in 94, right? So Ready to Die comes out when I'm a senior in high school. And I actually don't start listening to Biggie until I remember it was the weekend of my junior, my senior prom, okay, in 95. But at the same time Biggie is dropping Ready to Die, apparently the superintendent of schools in Philadelphia is making a comment that says um, July 1, 1998, uh, the school district of Philadelphia will cease to exist in any recognizable form. And I'm like, how crazy is it? Why? Why? How can the superintendent that y'all hired, that you're paying, get out here and state the district itself is ready to die, right? And so it just made me think about Biggie, right? That album is, there's so much stuff where he's sort of pressing up against, you know, I want to live no more. You know, I feel death knocking at the front door. Um, and at the same time, there's also, to me, some joy, some hope. Um, there. And I feel like that's the tension that was also captured in, in this fourth chapter with that uh, superintendent making that comment. And so I just started to think, where else do I see these parallels with these chapters? So um, Black Rain, uh, 
thinking of Queen Latifah. I thought about naming that chapter Ladies First. Um, but either way, it had to be about Queen Latifah. Because when I think about Queen Latifah, when I was in middle school and she would be in the videos with the, with the hat and everything. Um, exactly, yes. exactly. Um, she was just so regal and she commanded this respect, much like the super in, the first black woman superintendent of the school district. And so I named the chapter about that superintendent for Queen Latifah, Black Rain. Um, so that's kind of how that went. Well, well you know, I, I love that because on the backdrop of urgen, urban education, right, in this history, you begin to find some urban themes, urban themes that people who love the 90s, that's a whole decade of music, they can connect because they knew when the album drops, like you said, and they knew what those various albums meant. So definitely looking forward to the continued table of contents. I think it's published on the internet. So some of the links yep. that's being dropped, make sure y'all check that out. Yeah, I can Tell put a about... link in the chat, actually. Okay, yeah, thank you. So, you know, why are you doing that? What I would like to think about is your research. And I love research. I'm a data nerd, right? So as you know, data just tells a whole different story. So as you begin to tell the story, I love what you did. You didn't just like do some personal interviews, which are helpful. You went back and you did some hardcore research. Tell us about your trips to Phillies for research and the kind of people you met along the way. So I spent, uh, starting in 2018, 28, so for three years, I would sit in the, uh, kind of for three years, um, 440 North Broad Street is where the School District of Philadelphia is headquartered now. And initially, I was just looking for policy statements from the district. Um, but because the district has turned over its leadership and who manages the different offices so many times, they couldn't tell me where the policy statements were. And instead, they said, we can give you access to the minutes. And I the, the Board of Education's minutes. And I was like, who wants to look at that? But it ended up being this like treasure trove. Every year of the minutes, from 1963 until about 1999, each each year is its own book. And each book is anywhere from 600 to 1,200 pages long. And so I would skim and scan and use my iPad to snap pictures of the pages because it's not online and those books have to stay in the office. Um, and so then I would bring them here and I would you know print out the pages and then go through and look for themes and do my codes and sort of all that. And when you get into um, 2000. 2004 forward, they're online. And so I was able to sit here in my home and, and look at that information then. Um, but it's just so much information that you, that things that we wouldn't even think about were in um, the minutes of the Board of Education, things that were captured that people have forgotten about in a lot of ways. So, I mean, that was a, it was a beautiful discovery that I didn't expect. Awesome. The meeting minutes. I mean, like you said, that sounds painful. But at the same time, I love it because it gives you foundation in your research, right? Because, you know, and I, I love the highly documented approach now, because even people who want to question, they'd be like, whoa, 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 you see it's in the meeting minutes. Do you want to go read it? Do you want to hire somebody to read it? Feel free. So, so I love it, right? You know, <coughs> excuse me. Whoa. Excuse me, y'all. I get a little excited. <laughs> so, but, you know, I just love that part of it, um, you know, because one, it's like you said, it's almost like this, 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 this treasure, this fine that was painful, but at the same time, it gave you a solid, valid, valid foundation. So how many years of um, uh, meeting minutes and notes did you go through again? From 63 until 2018. Wow. 
So you went back and just read all of this stuff. Any observations, right? You know, on like the narratives from, let's say, the stories we tell, right? And the people you talk to versus yeah. the things that were in the meeting minutes. What did you kind of notice? I mean, it's interesting. You can, there's some some uh, commentary on sort of who we are, right? Even looking at the newspaper accounts um, and sometimes in the minutes. So uh, in the earlier minutes, women weren't listed by their own names. They were listed by the names of their husbands. Mm. So for instance, my mother, right? If my mother was in the minutes, she wouldn't be Mrs. Cassandra Royal. She would be Mrs. Jean Royal, right? And so there are these women who you would have to then dig a bit more if you wanted to find out who were they um, because they weren't listed by their own names, right? They were listed by the names of their husbands. Um, also, I mean, it's interesting things they say and didn't say, right? And what got captured um, in the notes. I started to wonder who was actually taking the notes, right? Like who, who was in the room? Who was the transcriber? Because the person who signed the minutes is the superintendent. But you know very well, the superintendent isn't the person sitting there doing the transcription. So it just made me wonder, you know, what was their particular vantage point? Whoever was in the room um, taking those notes at particular times. Um, it was fascinating to see the contention that would come up between board members or between board members and um, community members. Someone in the chat mentioned MOVE. Um, so if folks don't know, the MOVE bombing um, was an event that happened in 1985 in Philadelphia when I was seven years old in the second grade. What a lot of people, those who do know about MOVE, don't necessarily know is that 10 years prior, MOVE was showing up to, to Board of Education meetings um, to sort of protest what was and wasn't happening in schools for children. Um, so there were a lot of fascinating ties to sort of the larger history of, of the city, of the state, of the world and, and, and Black people um, that, we, that I found in the minutes. Awesome. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. You know, one of the things you said, you know, as we talked is why you consider it very important of what happens to our Black narratives when we tell our stories mm -hmm. versus when someone else. One thing I love about Southern Soul is that, well, part of what we do as we interview and we talk is we're doing what I call digital storytelling, digital narratives, so that we can tell our own stories. What's your observational perspective of why it's important for us to tell our own stories, right, instead of someone else telling our stories? You know, so someone just put in the chat asking about um, attempts to ban critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And one of the tenets of critical race theory is counter narratives or storytelling. The, the essential nature of telling our own stories to disrupt grand or master narratives that exist. And this is why us telling our own stories matters. Because um, who I think it was Zora Neale Hurston that said, you know, uh, if, if if you don't tell people, you know, sort of how it impacted you, you know, they'll, they'll lie and, and say that you enjoyed it, right? Um, I, I, I think it's important for people to know, for those who come after us, for those who walk alongside us, to know um, that not everybody has gone along with these things easily, to know that we weren't all docile. You know, when you see people saying things like, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, I mean, it's possible, right, that we are. It's also possible that we're not quite, right, because we have some of the, the narratives of our ancestors. Um, and so I think it's very important to have accounts 
first person accounts. Um, and if it can't be a first person account, a witness account, I consider myself a witness as someone who is from Philly and went to Philly schools, but was never an education in Philadelphia, uh, was never a, a teacher in Philadelphia. Um, but, but to have accounts from our Black perspectives about what's happening in the rest of the world. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you um, for that. You know, as we begin to wrap up, we want to kind of begin to know how we can follow you and support you. I already know what I'm going to do. Soon as the book hit, I'm going to be hitting up all of the channels, been like, look here, Coleman Love, we got to support our sister and let her know, let them know that she needs, this book needs to be everywhere, that they're willing and open to tell the story of that history. But you tell us, how can we better support you? Like, you know, your book is coming up, you know, you know, what can we as Southern Soul do to better support you in the work you're doing? You know, I appreciate that question. I, um, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here. Um, I really hope people buy the book and, you know, I hope that folks engage in the story. Um, and, and I, you know, that supporting me sounds nice. Don't worry about supporting me. I feel like people need to look in their own communities to see what stories need to be told in their communities um, so that there will be testimonies of, of our work um, and how we fought back against um, racism, against white supremacy, against Anglo-normativity, against um, the patriarchy, against all these forms of oppression um, that, that continue to try to kill us. Awesome, awesome. You know. I love, thank you for that. And we'll definitely continue to support you. And I love what you said. We should begin to continue this legacy of telling our stories and make sure that we understand, like you said, not everybody was docile. Not everybody, you know, just went along with the flow. Mm -hmm. You know, recently I was at this conference and one of the things we were talking about was just the future of Black Wall Street was a theme. But one of the quotes that the gentleman said there, it really made me think. You know, he says, you know, what I believe the future should look like in small business and entrepreneurship should be an environment to where we give our children, our next generation, the opportunities to take risk, the opportunities to not just choose a job that said, hey, this is a nice, comfortable, you know, you know, government job that 99.9% I'm going to have a stable career, but the ability to travel abroad, the ability to take risks, the ability to just figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Because there's opportunity in that. There's opportunity to begin to just stretch that. And I really thought about it. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we can choose a life that's so, so comfortable and so, so complacent. And then we can choose another route that tells a story. So I commend you and I thank you, Dr. Roll, for being here with us, sharing your story and giving us an opportunity to understand how your story, Philly's story, and our story have so much in common. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome, awesome. So we dropped in the chat um, where you can find um, um, Dr. Kamika Roll's book. And um, is that also, if they want to follow you, um, do you have a fan page or a .com you want to share? Sure. So I'm on Twitter, Dr. Kamika Royal, um, and on Facebook also at Dr. Kamika Royal. Um, I don't have a website because I don't have, I, I'm going to get one. I'm going to get somebody to build me one. I just haven't worked on that just yet. Um, I'm on sabbatical next year from my job. Praise God. And I can work, I can start to work on all these things that I should have been doing, like creating a website. Understood. Understood. It is a lot of work, you know, and I'll make sure I'll support you with that. I'll make sure 
we get you up and going and that you have what you need. You know, I used to do web design, but, you know, you know, but I may do that for you. I'll help you out on that. Yeah, that. I got you. you. Yeah. Some people call that favor, right? All right, now. Yeah, yeah. Only do it. Yeah, he will. Well, thank you. So we're going to transition to our next speaker and hang tight. Feel free to kind of vibe with us. And we're going to transition to our next speaker. And what we're going to do, Dr. Tamika, Kamika, is we're going to continue our conversation of history. We're going to continue our conversation of a theme. You know, if it's your first time here tonight at Southern Soul, before we get started, I want to kind of let you know who we are. We spotlight every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern fascinating people. As Dr. Kamika Roll said, people who are telling their stories, telling their narratives, people who are not just docile, people who are, I call them, not the people who volunteer and put it on a resume. No, 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 not those people, but fascinating people, people who have lived a life with a story to tell. So if you know people like that, feel free to hit me up. I can be found at Calvin, that's C-A-L-V-I-N, at southernsoulpodcast.com. We're always looking for fascinating people and great people to share that story. In addition, I want to let you guys know that we have some awesome events coming up this weekend. It's all about virtual for us. It's about connecting. So this weekend, we're going to be doing our first Saturday <clears throat> connections. So we're starting at 1 p.m. Eastern with Wine, Women, and Wealth, a pre-Mother's Day experience where moms, you know, participate for free. And Tamika's going to drop in the chat how you can get access to this information, but it's a great opportunity to learn about not only, you know, expanding your palate, but also a good history on wealth, not history, understanding of wealth. And what we discovered on the people who have been signing up, there were people over 40. So what we're going to focus on is not just, hey, you know, I'm getting started in finance, stuff like that, but what should people over 40 be thinking about? when it comes to their finances, their retirement, their investments, right? And what do you need to do if you need to get caught up? That's also a topic. So Tamika dropped in the chat of where you can register for that. And then on Saturday night, we like to have fun. We'll have a dance party later, Peter. You know, so we're going back to, we're going to play some Dr. Tamika, Tamika Roll music, and we're going to have to, but Saturday night is really about having fun, social. For people who, you know, they've been, you know, in a relationship for a little while, they've been kind of doing their thing. And they're like, wait a minute, how do I keep this thing spicy, right? How do I keep my relationship with that energy? We got Dr. Charlisa Jackson, and I can't even count the degrees, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, who's going to break it down for us. We're going to have a grown folk conversation, and that's going to be Saturday at 8.30 p.m. So if you haven't signed up, sign up for that. That's going to be free. It's going to be music. Y'all may even see me do a little dancing. But I just want to kind of let you know about us here at Southern Soul Thursdays. You'll catch us every Thursday at 8 p.m. But on first Saturdays, you'll see us doing something a little different. But let me get started with my brother, Peter Borkin. What's up, Peter? How you doing? We got to get you off mute. Hey, frat. And uh, I guess how's everybody doing this evening? Awesome. What do you think about Dr. Kamika Rawls? Sister did her thing, didn't she? Yes, uh, very impressive. Uh, you know, there still are many inequities that are occurring in uh, public. I'm trying to get my, my reel oh. going, but keep going. Sorry about that. No problem. There are many inequities that are still going on in um, 
Mm. Okay. I promise uh, you're good. You're good, Frank? Yeah, okay. Good. <laughs> yeah, just caught me off guard. Uh, there are many inequities that are still occurring in, in um, the K-12 realm, and, and I'm not surprised. What's happened in Philly is no different than what has happened uh, in Detroit and a lot of other cities in the north and, uh, and uh, east coast. So, uh, yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. I mean, really, you know, people say that Brown versus Board Education was a southern thing. It, it really encompasses... The whole United States, like, it's like I put that quote in the chat earlier. Malcolm X said, as long as you're south of Canada, uh, you'll still see racism. I mean, my my dad and uncle went to high I went to the same high school, Cass Tech, which is the school that Diana Ross and many other uh, famous people from Detroit graduated from. Um, when they went there uh, back in the 60s, it was predominantly white. And it wasn't until the 67 insurrection when you had white flight. Uh, that uh, Cass and uh, the majority of other uh, Detroit public schools became majority African-American, uh, you know, by the next decade. But even with a majority African-American school district, there's a lot of inequity. And the funny thing now is we have in Detroit, our, they have their first white superintendent in like decades. He came in a couple years ago. He was from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And as you can imagine, uh, people up here were kind of up in arms because usually the, the previous superintendents were indigenous Detroiters or African-Americans. So it's it's like she talks about the colonization. That's what's happening now in Detroit. You know, they brought a white superintendent, still majority African-American, district, but but I, I think that the conspiracy plan is just like, the, you know, the city housing is, is starting to uh, become more mocha. Uh, the same with, uh, you know, the, the master plan for, for the school district to try to make that on par with, uh, you know, the new, res uh, new residential patterns uh, happening in the city. Yeah, you know, thank you for that backdrop, because when, sure. I, when I thought about tonight, you know, I, you know, I saw opportunity for some Coleman love. Right. And it was just like a beautiful thing. Right. I said, you know what? Yes. We're talking about history. Would it not be beautiful for my sister, Dr. Kamika Roy, and my brother, Peter Boykin, to really just break down this history for us, right? And I just love the passion she has for history. You see what I'm trying to say? Mm. Did you see when she was talking how she just lit up? You know, when she first got talking, she was warming up. She's like, I had a date. Mm. But then all of a sudden, she started telling her story, right? And all of a sudden, boy, y'all mm. would have given her a pulpit. She was she ready to go. Right. And, you know, and that's what I love about this thing, right? Because some uh. people don't understand why I have a passion for history. Because history, you know, it's not <clears throat> storytelling, but it's really, really understanding that, hey, the things we have weren't always so easy. The things that we have that are hard weren't always that way, but it gives us, people say, context. And yes. the context to give allow us to appreciate certain things. The context to remind us to fight for certain things. The context to remind our role and our purpose as we carry that torch. And that's kind of how I, you know, of course, the frat got me started with excitement of history. But as I began to explain, oh, yeah. it just went so, <clears throat> so much more. So what we got tonight, uh, Peter, I want you to tell people about you because you've been on the show before. And I definitely want you to come back again. But give people, um, as I queue up the video, I'm not going to do it while you're talking. Sorry about that. But what <laughs> that's I okay, frat. Is give people a backdrop of who you are, what you do. And also share with them a little bit about your family in the context of why and how you became, you know, an uh, advocate for history uh, or passionate about history. Sure. Um, I'm a native Detroiter. 
uh, went to Hampton University undergrad, uh, majored in history. And uh, then I got a, a master's degree in secondary education from Howard University. I also have a master's degree in uh, public relations from Michigan State University. Been in the education field for 22 years. I started out my educational career in the uh, D.C. area, taught social studies in the Prince William County, Virginia Public Schools. And then in uh, 2004, I transitioned back to Detroit, and I've been at Wayne County Community College District for the last 18 years, which is the largest community college district in in uh, the state of Michigan, and one of the largest in the United States. We have about six campuses. We also have dual enrollment programs, and I teach African-American history, uh, world history, and uh, U.S. history. Now, in terms of my family, uh, I have so much rich history in my family. Uh, I'm going to be very brief because I know we, we've got a lot to discuss this evening. Uh, we'll start with my great-great-grandfather, which I talked about on the previous show. Uh, his name was Johnson Whitaker. He was one of the first African-American cadets to attend West Point. And ironically, he roomed with Henry O. Flipper, who was the first African-American cadet to graduate from West Point. After Flipper graduated from West Point, my great-great-grandfather was the only African-American cadet at, at uh, West Point. And they just totally mistreated him, saw him as the invisible man, and he was scheduled to graduate. He was born a slave, by the way, in um, uh, Camden, South Carolina, became free at age eight. And uh, <clears throat> so when he when he went to West Point, uh, they didn't recognize him at all. Uh, like I said, he was the invisible man. They spat in his food. They wrote death threats towards him. And then in 1880... Uh, April 18th, this was two months before his graduation. He was found in his room tied with his hands to the bedstead, and they made it look like he was trying to commit suicide. So they court-martialed him. It was in New York City. In the next year, you had uh, Richard Greener, uh, who was an African-American. He was the first African-American to graduate from Harvard undergrad and dean of Howard's Law School. And Samuel uh, Chamberlain, who was white, uh, former governor of South Carolina, defend him. And there were, he was he was found guilty of, tr of trying to commit suicide, you know. And so he faced uh, about two years in a federal prison labor camp, was overturned by Chester Arthur, went back to South Carolina, and he settled where um, uh, Kamika's uh, family uh, was from, uh, Sumter, practiced law there. Uh, started a family, and uh, then he also became a high school principal uh, in South Carolina and, and went to Oklahoma. A book was made about him called Assault at West Point, starring Samuel Jackson. And uh, yes, uh, my cousin pointed out, yes, they accused him of mutilating himself. Yes, I mean, it was just so egregious. And uh, the wrong wasn't written until almost... Uh, Centuries, late, centuries later, uh, Dr. John Marzalek, a historian, found the 12,000-page transcript of the court-martial and his Bible, which was his diary, and uh, it was used for a book, then became made for TV movie, and then in 1995, my cousin Elizabeth and I, and my, my uh, parents, and the rest of the family members, we were flown, all expenses paid to D.C. to be bestowed the posthumous commission of second lieutenant, which is what he would have earned. Uh, with President Clinton. Um, I know we want to get to the colorism topic, so I'm just going to be brief on the other things. Um, 
you see what else? Oh, um, my dad, uh, Boykin's side, my grandfather, Ulysses W. Boykin II, was one of the founders of WGPR TV in 1975, one the first commercially owned and operated African-American television station in the United States. So this is before BET, before TV1. WGPR paved the way for BET, TV1, Centric, and all these other uh, channels. And then, of course, my dad, um, he's a retired judge. He was one of the founders of the Harvard Law He's an Omega, too. Uh, he's one of the founders of the Harvard Black Law School Students Association. He was in law school with a lot of heavy hitters, uh, uh, he was in law school with, um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, God, I'm sorry, drawing a blank here. Oh, it'll, it'll come to, oh, yes. Um, the uh, gentleman who became the first African-American uh, CEO, uh, Reginald Lewis. Uh, he was in school with my dad. And uh, also Randall Robinson with, with Trans-Africa. And my dad was the first African-American lawyer to integrate one of the prominent white law firms of Detroit, Dickinson, uh, Wright, Moon, and Van Dusen. And uh, my dad was honored at the Barristers Ball this past weekend for his years of service on the bench. And I was looking at the uh, program from it and who were one of the sponsors, but the firm he started out with years ago. And now, I mean, they have several African-American partners. So he, he's definitely, you know, a trailblazer. Uh, awesome. And, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm working on my dad's uh, memoirs right now. I've, I've started recording them and uh, COVID set things back, uh, but I'm going to get back on it. So stay tuned. I'm, I'm, I'm coming out hopefully in the next couple of years with, with a book. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.